Hello and welcome to our latest Beyond Brexit podcast. I'm Emily Kahn. Now, every Friday morning here at PwC, members of our Brexit team and some of our political advisors meet to discuss the latest developments and what we should be advising clients as a result. Today, for one week only, the week when our new Prime Minister has taken office, you're invited to listen in on our discussion. By way of introduction, I'm joined by two familiar voices, Anna Wallace and Andrew Gray, and a first-time Beyond Brexit podcaster, Mark Hoban, member of our PwC Advisory Council and former Conservative MP and Government Minister. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Now, we now know that Boris Johnson will be our new Prime Minister. Um, for Brexit, what do we know about his intentions? Maybe, Anna, I can come to you first and what we've learned in recent weeks. Hi, Emily. Um, well, I, I guess we're still learning um, and we know a little bit more now than we did only 24, 48 hours ago. But what do we know? Well, he's absolutely committed to leaving on the 31st of absolutely. October, come what may. And we saw that restatement again um, on the steps of Downing Street that he will, he is committed to leaving on the 31st of October. Deal or no deal, mm -hmm. uh, and that's clearly significant for um, businesses who are planning. The cabinet that he's put together is very much a Brexit cabinet, all, all believers, uh, and will all be motivated to maintain that 31st of October deadline. He'll be off to European capitals next week to try and improve the withdrawal agreement because he said that the backstop, which of course is, remains the biggest barrier Absolutely. to getting that deal through Parliament, he's described it as uh, anti-democratic. Uh, so it's clear that he needs to come back with something much, much better from Brussels to support even his own rhetoric, let alone what other his, his colleagues around Cabinet might, uh, might desire. Great. And Mark, um, we normally come to you first on these calls, so is there anything that you would add to, add to what Anna's just said? Yeah, I think we, we can't uh, avoid the importance of the backstop. You know, it is a key plank of the EU's uh, negotiating position, okay. but it is the biggest barrier to getting the deal through Parliament, and Theresa May found that on three occasions yeah. uh, before she resigned. And he needs to find something significant uh, that he can agree with his European counterparts if he wants to get a deal uh, before the 30, 31st of October. Okay. So is that feeling likely? I think it's feeling challenging. Yeah. Um, I thought that this might be the one area where he could come back with some cosmetic changes to the withdrawal agreement and it would be enough to convince his Brexiteer colleagues that we should get Brexit over the line with a deal um, and that he could uh, he would promise that alternative arrangements could replace the need to ever use the backstop. Yeah. The strength of the language used since he's become Prime Minister I think makes that quite challenging mm. to deliver something that's going to meet the, uh, the, the needs both of the European Union but also of, of Brexiteers in Parliament. Mm. But I think it's, for me, it's that, um, that contrast. You know, I think you know, Anna's point about Boris's rhetoric over the course of the campaign, he really has doubled down on the backstop. Yeah. Contrast that with the uh, comments coming out from Brussels, and you start to see where the collision is going to happen. And that's why I think when you look at the reshuffle that happened this week, what he's done is really strengthen the no-deal preparations, partly by promoting people like Michael Gove to the centre of uh, government, yeah. bringing in Dominic Cummings, who was a real leading light in the Leave campaign, but appointing Andrea Leadsom to Bayes, again, a very committed Brexiteer, Theresa Villas uh, to DEFRA. So you start to see that he's got really got a real grip on no-deal preparation across government mm -hmm. in preparation for that showdown with the EU and the showdown with Parliament before the end of October. 
absolutely. And I'd like to pick up on your point there, Mark, about Parliament, because whilst the backstop issue hasn't changed, that's the other thing that really hasn't changed. So mm. all change in the Cabinet, but actually in Parliament, no real change from the situation that Theresa May was dealing with. We're already starting to see some, some simmering of, of opposition um, in response to the developments this week. What might we see sort of play out in the autumn as we head towards October the 31st? So I think if his reshuffle has, has done two things. He's brought some of the hardliners who voted against Theresa May's deal on three occasions back into the cabinet. Yeah. So people like Priti Patel. Uh, he's got Jacob Rees-Mogg as leader of the House, which is a key role in terms of controlling the parliamentary agenda. So you can see he's tried to uh, strengthen his position with the ERG mm -hmm. and the hardline Brexiteers. The counter the counter result to that, the equal and opposite effect, I guess, is that he strengthened the rebels on the Conservative benches. You know, Philip Hammond will be a far more formidable opponent on the back benches than anyone who's gone before him. In fact, you've got people like David Gork, uh, Greg Clark, people who are ardent opponents of no deal on the back benches mm -hmm. now, gives them more latitude. So whilst he's calmed down the right of the party, he's uh, probably strengthened the position of the no dealers in the Conservative Party. Yeah, and of course, so with the, with the by-election coming up in a couple of weeks, that majority on paper could be reduced to two. But I kind of feel like that's an irrelevance actually in the in the sort of current state of British politics, because actually it just comes down to every vote. The government could lose some votes. Similarly, it could win some votes. Absolutely, I think two votes in the um, under the sort of May uh, era were lost by one vote. Um, that's not a lot if you just consider that you've got the, you know, the Jacob Rees-Moggs and other people like that now in your side and in your government and can't vote against uh, the government. And we've also had more Labour leavers saying that they will now, they think that no deal might even be better than no Brexit at all, people like Sarah Champion. So there's a lot of movement going on around the sort of parliamentary arithmetic. And of course, with the election of Joe Swinson at the beginning of the week mm -hmm. as well, uh, I suspect that we might see some more changes of, of sort of colour, parliamentary colour, before the year is out. Absolutely. But we shouldn't lose sight. Yes, absolutely. And as spot on, the numbers are very fluid, and you'll see people moving in either either in both directions from people opponents of No Deal to supporters of No Deal. Yeah. But the default setting still is that we leave on the 31st of October. Absolutely. That's what the law says. Yeah. So passing motions in the House of Commons isn't enough. You need to change the legislation. That's a much more challenging uh, ask because actually the legislative timetable and agenda is set by the government, not by the House of Commons. Yeah. So the rebels need to find a way to take control of that legislative agenda, uh, perhaps with the help of the Speaker, but that's the only way they can stop leaving, on no, leaving with no deal on the 31st of October. Yeah. Which, you, which is clearly something Boris is very articulate about wanting to be capable of doing. He's also been saying that he doesn't want it to be the case, but the combination of saying no ifs and buts in his, his initial speech and the commitment that the government itself is ramping up its no-deal preparations, I think gives a clear sign of the position he wants to be able to be in, even if it's not an outcome he's actually aiming for. Yeah, I think for people who aren't going to be down in the minutiae of who's voting which way on which vote, Overall, it feels like we are still a long way away from delivering Brexit, but we are probably at least as far away from avoiding a no-deal Brexit as well. Um, because th there's just too many parliamentary barriers, not necessarily the numbers, to be able to deliver that. So yeah. 
I wouldn't want any business listening to imagine that no deal can be averted by the sort of attempts of people like Dominic Grieve who have dominated the airwaves in the last few months. Yes, and of course during the summer Parliament won't be sitting. That's um, right. So we, we then, we, in September, have very little parliamentary days, and then in October we're, we're very close to the 31st of October. So the number of business days for Parliament to do things one way or the other is shrinking very quickly. It's not a lot. And that prompts the question, and certainly the one that I'm probably hearing most from clients at the moment, around a general election. And I saw a timeline just this morning about how quickly a motion of no confidence would need to be tabled and debated and voted on for there to be any prospect of a general election before the 31st of October. So how would you answer that? How likely is that as something that businesses should have in their minds for the autumn? Autumn, don't know. I think the Cabinet makes that feel more likely, but definitely it seems within the next 12 months, if not six months. Um, it's even if you do deliver Brexit by the 31st of October, you can't govern with a majority of three when you've got people like Dominic Grieve still counted on the government benches. Um, so if Boris wants to do anything which, with his time, which as his speech sets, set out, he clearly does, he wants to do a lot, including solve difficult issues like social care, yeah. you can't do that on a majority of three. So an election seems inevitable to me. Yeah, and I think I agree with that. I mean, and I think it will come about for, for one of two triggers. Either there will be a vote of no confidence, which, as you said, would need to occur very quickly in September for it to take effect for us to have an election before the end of October. But, of course, that then creates a further period of uncertainty where there, there isn't Parliament sitting to be able to debate things and get things done. Um, so a vote of no confidence is one option. Then if, if Boris does get the deal done by the end of October, I think that's highly likely, to, as Anna was saying, highly likely to result in a general election so that he can then reinforce his position uh, and, and in his mind, he'll have done the deal. A lot of resistance will have gone, so he'd be expecting to increase the Conservative majority to, to actually have a working majority, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. What are we missing, Mark? No, I, I, think that's, <laughs> I think that's right. I think the, you know, we shouldn't discount the prospect that he might call a general election before the 31st of October yeah. uh, to fight it on a leave versus remain yeah. battleground. Tell yeah. them again type to, thing. Absolutely, to get a mandate. Uh, I think that's quite a high-stakes move, particularly given the polarisation of the political debate around remain versus leave. Uh, that's still a hangover from the, from the referendum. But I think you know, if he gets that point, uh, you know, if he gets out, if he's out of the EU by the, 20, the 31st of October, then I can, I can very well see a sort of victory lap yes. election being called. Yeah. Uh, he'll have shot Farage's fox. Uh, he'll be able to scoop up those Brexit uh, votes and then seek to pivot the government's agenda away from Brexit to more, more around domestic policy, moving from uh, a sort of leave focus to something that's much more uh, consensual, much more uh, friendly to centre ground voters, back to what he would say is a one nation conservative, and sort of use that as the pitch to get a, a, a renewed mandate. You can't govern on the majority of three for three years. Yeah. So the question we always wrap up our calls with on a Friday, because I'm conscious that um, time is ticking by here, is to review the position that we put out to our clients on how they should be treating the risk of no deal. So I have a, have a proposal for you guys to debate, which is, is it now more likely than it has ever been that we will leave the EU with no deal? And I word that quite carefully. So not more likely than not, but more likely than it has ever been. Andrew, maybe I'll come to you first. So I, I think the risk is certainly raised or risen, um, and 
th th that's something that firms need to be absolutely aware of. Um, we, we were very concerned in the build-up to the 31st, sorry, the 29th of March about the risk going up because the deal hadn't been done. Um, but I think we're back in that territory. The risk is undoubtedly going up, and perhaps more so now than it's ever been. We have a Prime Minister who's been very clear about deal or no deal, we will be leaving on the 31st of October. Mm -hmm. As I said before, the ramping up of government plans for no deal, um, as we've been debating, the lack of clarity about how it could be resolved, uh, all points to that has been probably a more, more likely outcome today than it has been. Um, nevertheless, you know, there are, remain a number of uncertainties, a range of options, um, so it's still very difficult. Okay, so we're still in plan for the worst and hope for the best territory, which I think is where we've probably all been for some time. Anna and Mark, any, any additions to what Andrew's just shared? Yeah, I think a couple of things I'd say. First is, the preparations for no deal are serious. You know, there's clearly a uh, recognition if the government can't achieve a deal, it does want to be out by the first, 31st of October. No sense of being kicking the, kicking the can down the road beyond that. Uh, but also, let's not forget, his first preference is to get a deal. So part of this new, new, no deal ramp up is to increase leverage on the EU by saying, look, we're ready. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's no, there's no problem to us if we leave. Uh, just ch slightly change the negotiating dynamics. But fundamentally, you know, firms have to prepare for no deal. You know, the, the risks have increased, or the probability has increased, uh, over the course of the last uh, few days. And I think heads, firms would be sticking their heads in the sand if they pretended this could go away. Yeah, I think that's, I agree with all of that. If there were a smooth version of all of this, then I guess it, um, it might be that Boris probably does have a bit more political capital with those people who had otherwise voted against the deal under May. Um, he has his increased leverage in his preparedness for no deal with Europe. Maybe he can come back with some small cosmetic changes to withdrawal agreement. And potentially, of course, the political declaration is still to play for. Mm -hmm. He could strengthen that and potentially win over a few more people. I don't think there's many of those people to be won over. But there is a version, I think, of, of, of history where he uh, uses his political capital effectively in his first hundred days um, to convince enough people to get a deal through his preferable, his um, first preference, as Mark suggested. So um, he likens himself to Churchill, I think. Whether, well, this is his so legacy, I, I wonder right? whether the, uh, Churchill's predecessor might be the model where Chamberlain came back with a piece of paper and Boris comes back from a summit with a piece of paper that is all the changes he needs to get this deal through. Maybe cosmetic, Even if it doesn't not, mean anything in the long but run. <laughs> it might be enough just to persuade people to come back on board. I do uh, think that point about legacy is important, though, and, and to Mark's point about governing as a one-nation Tory, it might not be now, but I do still think that that sense of his legacy will be very important to Boris. So I do think that coming back to try and reunite the country around a domestic agenda or whatever it might be will be on the cards. It just depends sort of what it takes to get us there. I'd like to pick up on your point there, Anne, about a 100-day plan, because yeah. actually my the countdown clock on our Beyond Brexit website tells me we have less than 100 days now to go until Brexit. Um, Andrew, what would your advice be to businesses? So we've, you know, a clear call to action there not to bury your head in the sand. Where should they be focusing? I mean, I think a, a number of areas. I mean, we, you know, with, with less than 100 days to go, time is very tight. And as we saw last time in the bill at the 29th of March, firms went from thinking that it was too uncertain to do anything to it was too late to do something. Yeah. And, and we're, we're almost on that cusp again. Um, but I think, you know, and things have moved on. So I think one of the things that is just revisit the same plans that you had last time. So it's all about 
um, trade, international trade, customs, borders, people, having the right data to make sure that you can facilitate the movement of goods as need be, understand the regulatory environment, the permissions you have, um, and, and most of all important is, is about the people yeah. aspects in terms of you know, who are your people, where do they sit, and, and their, their, their rights under a no-deal scenario. Um, but I think we also need to think about the fact that things have changed. Many firms who had plans, the people involved in those plans may well have moved on to new roles. They may well have gone through a period of downsizing their, their contingency teams. That where are those people now focusing their times? How do you get them back? How do you get the right people involved in making decisions uh, around Brexit? And then also the seasonal nature. So yeah. 31st of October is a very different seasonal nature of business for some firms, particularly those that have got demands for Christmas. Warehousing space profiles look very different in October than they might have done Absolutely. in April. Um, and for the financial markets, uh, you know, having a Brexit, hard Brexit, which occurs midweek rather than at a weekend is also a very different dynamic to deal with. So a number of specific co complications, but really thinking now, and of course at, at the time when everyone's about to go on summer holidays, that makes it even harder. Absolutely. And for those businesses who are well prepared, some businesses are now starting to think more about the indirect, potential indirect impacts on their business. So. If you're a bank, you've got your regulatory regime set up, but what about my customers? Are any of them at risk of falling over in the event of an OD? And again, we'll probably encourage those listeners from bigger organisations to think a little bit more about those indirect impacts while they've got the time yeah, to. absolutely agree with that. And in fact, everything you've just said reflects our no regret decisions, which I know we've talked about many times on this series and have been refreshed and will be relaunched on our website very soon. Um, Andrew, I know you are very familiar with all of those. Um, a final question, if I may, maybe a, an optimistic and future-focused note to close on. Um, I think you probably all saw our chairman write an article very recently about the unique opportunity the UK now has post-Brexit as um, everybody's second home, London being everybody's second home, it being a melting pot, a convener with world-class universities and lots of other strengths going for us. And he set out in there a call to action for... Um, the business community really to step up and join with government in defining that vision for the UK for the future. I would just be interested in, in your thoughts on, on that challenge and what businesses should be thinking about faced with that opportunity. Well, we've always, uh, uh, one of the things we've always advised firms is just to, to look quite far into the future. I mean, there are some broader changes which are happening in the world and, and you know, some tensions which exist in the short term, some of the trade tensions, Brexit is one. But actually, you know, technology isn't going to stop evolving and, and will radically change the world of the future. You know, the internationalisation agenda, it will change, but fundamentally, you know, the world will need to trade going forward. So I think it's to try to think about some of those things which, you know, in the future, you know, are going to be the, the, the pillars of doing business. You know, people, technology um, and the international environment, there are things there that firms need to continue to focus on for the future. Absolutely. But I think it's also, uh, Kevin's article, I think it also rem reminds us that there are some fundamental reasons why we have competitive advantage. You know, it is about the rule of law, education system, uh, openness for, for business, uh, well-developed financial markets, you know, cultural assets like theatre, cinema. I mean, they sound very sort of fluffy, but they do determine where people live, where their businesses are based, and where they want to trade from. And absolutely, we'll go through a process of disruption as access to European markets becomes narrower and shallower. But those fundamentals remain. And our challenge, I think, is to build on those 
and to engage with the big mega trends, you know, globalization, demographics, technology, and think what do they mean for our businesses and how can we capitalize upon them to continue to grow in the future. I think that's a lovely place to draw things to a close. I think we all agree with that. And in fact, we are thinking about um, a program of activity in the autumn to bring together the business community and government um, to answer some of those questions. So thank you, Mark, for explaining so nicely. And thank you all for joining me. Um, so that's it for today. We are going to take a breather for a few weeks. Whilst Parliament is recessed, we too will take a bit of a pause here to regroup and re-gear and put ourselves on the front foot for what is shaping up to be a very busy autumn. In the meantime, listeners, do check out pwc.com forward slash Brexit for those no-regret decisions and all updates until then. Bye for now. <laughs>